Welcome to True Heroes, the podcast that celebrates the ordinary people with extraordinary missions to make the world a better place one day at a time. I am your host, Rosalino. This week, I sit down with Naomi Fuller, the communications manager at Avon Wildlife Trust, and an activist who advocates for the creatures, the critters, and surrounding landscape that give those creatures their homes. She does this by telling stories of hope about nature's recovery in the Avon region of England. And if you live in a city like me, you might feel like the real nature is in the national parks an hour's car ride away. Well, this conversation with Naomi just might change your perspective to think about the nature a few feet away in your own backyard and teach us how we can take better care of it. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Naomi Fuller. Enjoy! All right, I have here Naomi Fuller with us on True Heroes. Hi, Naomi, thank you so much for joining us on True Heroes podcast. Hi, Rosalind, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's going to be a pleasure, and we have so many things, uh, so many cool topics to talk about. But before we go any further, of course, we have to start with. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. I am Naomi Fuller and I am the Communications and Marketing Manager at Avon Wildlife Trust. Great. And of course, the question to follow that would be, um, could you introduce a little bit of what Avon Wildlife Trust is? Absolutely. So Avon Wildlife Trust is the largest charity in the west of England working to support wildlife, conserve landscapes and inspire people and communities to care for nature. Um, We are an individual charity that covers the old county of Avon and so that's the landscape which stretches from South Gloucestershire in the north down to the Mendips in the south and Bath and the Cotswolds to the east um, and right across to the Severn Estuary. So we've got a really varied and wonderful landscape, very rich in wildlife um, and as well as you know some, some incredible cities, towns and neighbourhoods which are also rich in wildlife and we're working to make them even more nature nature friendly. Um, and Avon Wildlife Trust is one of 46 wildlife trusts across the UK. We're all unique and individual but we're also a collective movement and we join together for big campaigns and to raise our voice on, on really important national issues too. Um, I can say a little bit more about, about the trust. We're a membership organisation. We have 16,000 fantastic members people of all ages, so um, professional people, older people, families who, who join us and they connect with us. Um, we have amazing corporate support from companies across, across the west of England um, and we have um, many hundreds of volunteers, some of whom come out with our land management team, scything, coppicing, mm. doing the hands-on work to look after these wonderful landscapes. Um, and a lot of volunteers who do lots of other really important roles because actually we're we're only 40 staff so we see Avon Wildlife Trust as not just the staff organisation it's the whole of the kind of community of people that join us um, to take action for nature and wildlife. That's first of all that's really really 
um, interesting and for me because I actually live in the region at least um, as of last year um, I can kind of have an idea but I know that we have listeners from Indonesia Germany I track obviously my listener stats and so could you actually just paint a little bit of a picture of what this landscape and some of the wildlife you work mm. with are especially for people who are not familiar with this region in the UK yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's stunning. I, I um, moved down here 15 years ago after living in London, and um, I think the variety of landscape that you get in our region, I think I'm right in saying that the Avon region is around about 500 square miles. Um, please, statisticians and people who are cartographers, <laughs> yeah, don't write in to correct me. I think that's right. But, you know, there's the Mendip Hills are beautiful. Those are kind of, um, you know, wildflower rich grassland, hilly areas with stunning views over the Somerset levels and right out across the Severn Estuary towards Wales, um, where, you know, we're working on that Mendip Ridge to really enhance and look after and restore those very rare um, wildlife rich grasslands. I mean, th those are the kind of, some of the very last remaining wildflower meadows actually in the, in the UK. Mm. Um, I'm not gonna bombard with loads of stats, but I mean, it is, this is a shocking one that actually at the moment we, we now have 3% of the wildflower meadows that we had in the 1940s. So post-war, there were lots of changes to agricultural practices, which meant that wildflower meadows, which had just been a common, a common part of farmland, um, and obviously incredibly rich habitats for pollinators mm. were, were ploughed up and we've lost so many of them. So where we have them, we, we absolutely need to look after them. They're, they are rare wildflowers, which um, sometimes are the only food sources for pollinating insects. Mm. So I'm focusing in on one, one landscape, but then um, the landscape, which is kind of stretching between Clevedon and, and um, Portishead, it's called the Gordano Valley. That's a an, another rare type of landscape, and it's a flat, wet valley. It's a it's a wetland valley, low-lying mm. wetland valley, which is um, a really important habitat for winter wading birds. Mm. So birds like snipe, um, lapwing, um, red shank, those kind of birds. And again, the loss of sort of water sources on and, and you know. Um, again before kind of industrial farming practices and intense development there would have been many more of these kind of mm. wetland areas which would have just been allowed to flood they acted right. as kind of actually very important flood mitigation as well but they they would have flooded regularly in winter and they provide the perfect conditions for these wet, uh, winter wading birds that like mm. to probe their beaks into you know shallow water so we've done some habitat restoration and managed to get back some lapwing pairs that have, that have you know successfully bred and hatched their chicks and mm. it's always incredibly heartwarming when you actually see footage of you know these little fluffy chicks that Aww. staggering after the mother bird <laughs> and it's kind of one sign that you know where you put the effort and where you create the habitat or restore the habitat then you know wildlife can thrive again and that's what we're trying to do right across the region and then obviously we've got you know incredibly iconic sort of water water habitats as well mm. you know the river avon and the seven estuary so it's a really varied landscape i think avon um and it, and it's you know it's an it's a beautiful a beautiful place to explore we look after 30 nature reserves so some of those ancient woodlands some of them as i've described are these wetland um nature reserves in the gordano valley um, some of them, like for instance, um, one of our nature reserves, Dolbury Warren, is on the Mendips and has got you know wildflower 
uh, grassland um, habitat and incredible views. So they're wonderful places to visit. They're wonderful places to just enjoy being in nature, noticing the seasons, noticing the wildlife, um, learning and exploring, and you know, getting your well-being boost, which we all oh, absolutely yes. need. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. N- And that's where a lot of the focus of our work goes, of course, on practical conservation, but it's really understood now that nature reserves on their own are absolutely nowhere near enough to restore the decline of nature and put Mm. nature back into recovery. So we also work with other landowners um, to to kind of join up landscapes on a much wider scale, which of course is what wildlife needs to move, shelter, thrive, travel across. Um, so we work with other landowners and partners. Um, we also do a lot of work uh, focusing on how to support and help urban wildlife because we can all play our part. Um, and that's looking at, you know, wherever there are spaces. It can be window planters, it can be back gardens, parks, it can be bigger bits of land that communities can work on together. Um, again, planting wildflowers, doing some habitat restoration, providing perhaps bug hotels. Um, Ooh, yeah, bug hotels. Yeah. You can't just throw a word like that and ask, so, you know, bug hotels. what does that mean? Well, you know, so for insects that need to shelter um, over winter, um, they often will look for dry, dead wood and, and um, or they will look to bury into kind of stone walls and that sort of thing. Where those places aren't available, you can mm. actually provide them with a very swish man-made construction which they'll appreciate a lot and just a funny story is that you know we did a really fantastic project um last year with the ms therapy center which is a well-being um center for patients who are experiencing you know Mm -hmm. who have ms up in bradley stoke which is in um north bristol and we we basically worked with um staff and volunteers um some of our corporate supporters came and worked really hard to turn a very um you know uninspiring neglected tatty car park mm-hmm. into a really wildlife rich uh, wildlife and therapy garden for patients to oh, enjoy wow. it was an incredible transformation and our people and wildlife team did that um with the help of these fantastic volunteers actually from wessex water um and another corporate um and they also did a little project with some school children um, who live, you know, the school was local, so they came and helped and they understood what they were doing, it was all about taking action for nature, they got really into it and they built the most fantastic bug hotel and we had a really lovely launch event and some of the teachers were there and I was a bit perplexed because I've seen bug hotels before, they're just constructions of little bits of bamboo okay. and, you know, um, little bits of wood with enough niches and nooks and crannies for insects to get in and shelter but I couldn't understand why there was a piece of yellow sort of piping that seemed to go from the bottom to the top okay I've never seen that before so I asked the teacher and she explained very solemnly that her year six children had decided that the insects that lived at the top lived in a penthouse <laughs> so they had the luxury rent apartment 
but they were not too snooty to want to mix and party with the guys on the ground floor. Right. So this yellow piping was actually in their minds. It was an insect elevator. It's an elevator. Where you know it was like everyone mixed in this in (laughs) in this bug hotel, and they were all friends. So I love that story. There was quite a lot of personification of nature. Yeah, that's beautiful. I that sounds like a world I want to live in. Yeah, (laughs) where there's social mixing and we're all equal. There was so much social cohesion. You have no idea. Great. Um, and I think that's a brilliant example, well, both this and also the therapeutic garden you were talking about, that actually taking care of our ecosystems and taking care of our wildlife um, is actually great at taking care of people mm. and each other and the community, that these kinds of different causes are not at odds with each other. They're actually incredibly complementary, and those are great examples of when mm. it can happen like that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much more evidence now mm. that, you know, time spent in nature it really does give a measurable mm. benefit to health, physical health and mental health. And, you know, like we said before, we're also in need of it, you know, everyone of all ages, including young, you know, children and young people. Um, so yes, some a lot of the work we do is around helping people to kind of forge again that lost connection with nature. Mm. And it's an important thing because I think there's also... Um, a worrying thing which is sort of around this shifting baseline syndrome hmm. you know which is about <clears throat> you know young people perhaps are growing up without the frame of reference around right. what you would have expected to see if you went out on a right. walk in your park or you know very very few children today have seen a hedgehog in the wild mm-hmm. but for previous generations it was a fairly common sight and again as wildlife populations have plummeted so starkly what people are seeing and thinking is normal um has shifted really dramatically you know and that's why together with our other wildlife trust and as a national wildlife trust movement we're really campaigning for a, a, a much bigger scale and much more urgent kind of work to restore nature and that's 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 the other strand of work that we do is kind of championing the value of nature right really standing up you know with others but raising our voice with our members and our supporters to, to ask call for urgent urgent action and the, while, the the campaign that we're really focusing on collectively is around um, the Environment Act which published yesterday um, and you know announced in the Queen's speech we've been working really hard with other conservation and environmental organizations over many many months to make sure that 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 new law um, is going to you know provide us with really robust ambitious environmental laws and protections to put nature onto a, a, a recovery footing basically mm. um, and so that campaign is called the wilder future campaign and we've been doing lots of lobbying work encouraging others to raise their voices urge their mps to you know to get involved and support those ambitions but also it's been about really kind of galvanizing and motivating people to take their own actions for nature right um yeah so we campaign um on our own and we campaign with you know as a collective movement as well right and this is clearly a very not only an important cause but also an urgent cause and Mm. i can also clearly see um that you're very passionate about this and i'm curious to learn kind of where it started for you you know how do you do you feel like you have a it sounds like you have a lot of personal connection with um with the cause and i'm curious um why you're so passionate about this work and also kind of how it started and how you ended up being uh working for avon wildlife trust that kind of journey i'd be Mm. quite curious to know 
I mean, I'm definitely passionate about the cause in this, you know, as, as being an environmental communicator at, right at this moment in time feels both, mm. you know, incredibly relevant and meaningful. Mm. Um, it feels quite a responsibility mm. um, sometimes to, to get it right and make sure that we are playing, you know, doing everything we can to explain things to people because there's a lot of confusing information out there and, and but also to get it right to get the right balance between you know encouraging people to take action with us join us feel hope but also not be pulling back from the fact that you know mm. this urgency has to be taken seriously so it's always the kind of hope fear love loss <laughs> balance which you know sometimes communications people end up sort of really in the you know trying to make those decisions but yes personally very motivated I mean I don't I my background um is in well I started off in as a journalist training as a journalist yeah. so I think the thing I I definitely took for granted time in nature I had mm -hmm. a really quite a free childhood um I was lucky enough to have a lot of green space around me and my parents were really you know very very um knowledgeable about British wildlife you mm. know so I think it was just one of those things that I didn't even I knew the names of lots of wildflowers from my grandma and my, and my mother mm. and my parents had both been brought up in the countryside so that kind of just I don't know it's like an unconscious absorbing of knowledge rather than I never poured over you know textbooks or guidebooks or anything but we did spend a lot of time as a family mm. outdoors um, and it was where I did my best thinking and playing I suppose mm -hmm. so I've always seen it as a kind of a good backdrop to the creative side of life yeah and I've certainly tried to give my own children that chance however you know they've been brought up in a much more restricted and sort of yeah. had lost a lot less space but I've tried to do that for them too I think it's so important for childhood um and I suppose the thing that's run through is I've always felt like I'm very curious about you know I've always been very curious about other people and other people's mm. stories um I was really drawn to kind of writing and journalism so I trained as a journalist on a local paper uh, and then worked on magazines and then when I was in London I kind of moved across to do you know public relations work and communications work for not-for-profit organizations mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I worked for um, big charities like the British Heart Foundation um, and Crisis the homelessness charity Oh, the siren um, yeah. goes out the window just, uh, just as we're talking about yeah. this. Yeah, but yeah, please yes, go on. Yes, exactly. Urban, urban sounds. Um, oh, yes. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then when I moved to Bristol, I, I actually was involved in a really interesting Bristol, Bristol grown, but now national and in fact international organisation called Playing Out, mm. which is all about um, it helping residents to create the opportunities for uh street play for children on their residential streets so it's kind of trying to address some of the issues around children's lack of public space um the issues around you know the street becoming a no-go area for social interaction the dominance of traffic air pollution the way we've kind of constructed our cities often without people mm -hmm. at their heart so it's a really fascinating thing to work on right from the roots and the beginnings um, and then I work with them to kind of do communications and raise the profile. So I did that before coming to Avon Wildlife Trust. And in some ways, there's quite a lot of crossover in terms of, you know, certainly the learning and the learning work that we do around connecting people with nature has some parallels, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I suppose that's my kind of journey and I, what I, I suppose I feel very passionate about is yes, absolutely, it's about truthful um, communication with integrity. Mm. Um, so, you know, but also communication which is compelling and accessible. So there are no Latin names in any of our communications that go out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And I, and I'm, you know, and, and I, what I absolutely love is this kind of the, the fact that um, the average reading age in the UK um, is, is tw it's 12 years old. And I've heard people being very snooty about that and kind of seeing that as a sign of, you know, declining intellect or declining attention span. But actually, I know... 12 year olds and they give give me them as an audience any day because they're bright they're switched on they're very True. discerning yeah. they really detect a load of you know um i'm trying to think of a, a you know they, they absolutely can see through if they're being kind of preached at or patronized so i i am really mindful what i what i care about a lot is really accessible meaningful compelling uh, communication however whatever the channel but I also, my favourite part of the job um, is when you can help other people tell mm. their own stories. Mm. Um, and you know, so that's, that's when you can kind of go out and see one of our projects. For instance, we have a fantastic project called Spawn to be Wild, where we work with primary school and some secondary school children. And they have a whole school term where they are responsible for a tank of elvers, baby European eels in their classroom oh. and European eels are an endangered species yeah. they have this incredibly fascinating but very enigmatic and quite mysterious life, life cycle huh. so they spawn in the Sargasso Sea right. um, near Bermuda yeah. and then they're kind of washed on the currents towards the coasts of Europe that's quite a far distance yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. thousands of miles and then they turn into glass eels which are these transparent baby eels oh. and then they make their way up to freshwater rivers upstream wow. um, it's just the most incredible story so that the, the kids get these tanks of elvers and then they have to look after them and they learn about them and they do lots of work right across their curriculum so mm. some you know science and um, lots of environmental stuff but also they do creative writing they've done campaigning around plastic and litter pollution in waterways and things and what I love is when you kind of go to see how they're responding and that you know I remember last year there were a couple of girls who when I talk to them about it and I talk to them about what they thought before the eels arrived they said that they were dreading it because they thought they were going to be really ugly really frightening <laughs> they were the opposite and because they're not cute fluffy mammals yeah. you know they're not dormice they people don't necessarily respond quite so warmly but then they said that after they got to know them and of course named them Freddie <laughs> and I can't I think of the course. other one was yeah so Freddie and I can't remember the other one but once they got to know them, because um, there are 30 elvers in a tank, so yeah. each child obviously thinks they can recognise their own alpha, which is really <laughs> funny. They, they said that they loved them, they fell in love with yeah. them, and they loved them, and then they go to release them into a lake for the next part of their life cycle, and there are tears, and they're waving goodbye to them, and in, in their own way, they've actually it's kind of unlocked a curiosity, I think. Mm -hmm wider than just that eel and understanding the eel I, I that's what I really love seeing mm. displayed you know it's really unlocked a whole kind of fascinating journey for them of understanding more about the world they're living in and also the part they can play so that's always really rewarding I mean absolutely I mean 
that story about the eels um, absolutely reminds me of, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. I think we might have spoken about this before, um, but I'm new to the UK. So new UK landscape, UK wildlife, it's mm -hmm. fascinating because I know so little about it. It's great. It's a learning opportunity. Um, but yeah, when I was a child, I growing up, we learned a lot. Of, we had a very similar type of thing without actually keeping them as class pets um, with wild Pacific salmon. Okay. And then learning about their okay. cycles and the journey that they go through. And their life is crazy. Mm. Their life cycle is absolutely crazy. And learning and just understanding that something that is in front of me and comes to my home and my local ecosystem actually is connected to this global, gigantic, complex mm. web of ecosystems here and there. And it, and it blew my mind then. It still blows my mind now. <laughs> and I you know, it did exactly that. It, you know, made me curious and it widened just my scope and my understanding and also like a very tactical and practical um, level of understanding that it's one thing to read in a biotext biology textbook saying, you know, ecosystems are interconnected. But when you see salmon in your own stream and know that this has, you know, traveled thousands of miles to spawn here, you're like, actually, yes, the, mm. it, the entire world is all interconnected and what we do here matters not just to our own immediate surroundings but to the entire world mm. yeah i completely agree that you, that nothing is as strong as getting hands-on with yeah. nature yeah and you know if only we could give that same rich experience to every single yes. child and young person right across avon yeah you know if that would be, be that would be amazing but of course we are limited in our resources we try yeah. to do as much as we can with as many schools and as many families as we can but I think that thing about starting from a really early age and mm. getting a, a sense that nature is all around you, that you learn about it, but also you have a role to play yeah. in you know, being part of the community that looks after nature where you live um, mm. is important. So I definitely agree, you know, getting hands on, touching it, feeling it. And also asking all the kind of supposedly silly questions about yeah. it, you know. <laughs> um, I think all of that is is really important for kids yeah well and also i think um as adults we sometimes can get embarrassed to ask silly questions but actually i'm sure we um, i'm sure i and many others around me adults would benefit from asking people like you silly questions about mm. our wildlife because it would be great to backfill in whatever we didn't get um because maybe we grew up in an urban urban kind of neighborhood and urban surroundings yeah and you know and we're always learning and i think yeah. that's the whole point isn't it we never finish learning and we i work with colleagues in our in our conservation team who are obviously trained ecologists and who mm. are incredibly expert i mean my background is not in biological sciences or zoology or ecology but so I, you know, I am a communications professional mm. and what my job I feel is kind of translating specialist, sometimes yeah. anyway, translating specialist knowledge into the kind of, um, well, whether it be film or text or, or, you know, social media posts or whatever it is where people kind of go, ah, oh, okay, that's interesting or I want to know more or, you know, that's, that's made me sit up and listen. So I like being that kind of translator role, but you know, I'm and I love the fact that I'm always learning stuff. I didn't know until last week that there's um, several mammals, badgers, and I also think bats that have this kind of ability to basically the way they reproduce is through delayed implantation. So okay. when when they when they mate, the the fertilized egg basically seem like will sort of stay around in the uterus until yeah. the conditions are right. And then it will implant into the uterus wall and then pregnancy happens. 
I mean, wow. yeah, who knew? I didn't know this. <laughs> That's Several crazy. months after mating happens, no, the, the, preg- the, the egg is in there, but it hasn't implanted. Oh and it's, goodness. yeah, I didn't know that that happened, but badgers and bats. Oh my goodness, that's that's brilliant. Okay, it seems like you're just like a like a pot full of goodies and <laughs> great stories. Okay, can you give me, and I don't really have a good question, can you give me another cool story? <laughs> well, um, I'll tell you a story that we are really enjoying working on. It's, it's mm. a, like basically, we're doing a, a project which is, called My Wild City mm-hmm. and um, it's sort of the next phase of, of a, a kind of a project and also an overarching vision for cities and neighbourhoods across mm. our part of the world, across the west of England and My Wild City started in 2015 when Bristol was European green capital. It's yep. a really flagship year for, you know, putting nature in the environment and, um, you know, being a progressive place for environmental change absolutely center of of what was happening in bristol and it was a fantastic year to be you know to be doing things that were um that were connected with that we have now got funding through the national lottery heritage fund to do the next kind of iteration of my world city um and we have just started delivering on this project and i i love it it's basically we're working on eight different hidden havens for nature spread out right across Bristol Um, and all of these sites these eight sites are designated as local wildlife sites which means that they're really important for wildlife that includes you know hedgehogs slow worms bats voles woodpeckers but they're often quite neglected places right right, very near to where people live to housing estates and communities and often they've fallen into a bit of neglect in terms of practical maintenance you know um, woodland needs coppicing um, and looking after so that the the woodland flowers can flourish Um, perhaps the kind of scrub has over you know over dominated wildflowers Mm -hmm. Um, so we're working over the next three years to um, on these hidden havens which are absolutely rich it's like opening a kind of door into a secret world when you go and visit them they're often places that people who live very very close to them in these communities don't even go to Mm. for lots of reasons they're maybe not accessible they don't really know that they're there they don't necessarily feel that great or they would like to go to join in with things and up to now perhaps it hasn't been so easy but they're, they're right next to eight very different communities mm-hmm. in, across the city. Um, and they're communities that have also sometimes perhaps been a bit overlooked. Right. And I think that's a really important thing. So we're working with um, people of all ages. We're taking school tr- uh, schools out to visit these sites, mm. to have some time in nature. We're going to be going out actually tomorrow with some sweep nets with some, some children on one of the sites, Lawrence Weston Moor. Um, to see what we can see, to find what we can see, perhaps in one of the one of the wildlife ponds, and then we're going to be working with volunteers as well to really enhance them as places for nature to flourish. Yeah. So I think that's a really great project, and I like the kind of combination there that we're kind of doing work with communities in partnership. The idea is not about Avon Wildlife Trust kind of going in and you know doing it to the community. Yeah. It's absolutely about finding those people. There's always people who are kind of real dynamic movers and shakers in every community so we're working with those people um, and we are also doing leading on the kind of hands-on practical conservation to make sure that those places are really restored for nature right for people you know for people in future generations 
Um, but we're also looking at some really creative ideas. We haven't got anything definite, you know, definitely in place, but we're looking at some kind of more unusual ways to perhaps engage with those spaces. And there's mm. um, a woman that we've met who is a fantastic artist and she teaches kind of nature journaling. Ooh. You know, so, and, and some of, I'm, I'm really interested in how culturally people are now kind of um, connecting with nature, documenting nature, writing about nature. There's such a kind of upsurge, I think, in people really needing nature in their lives, but also nature journalism, nature art. There's even a genre now that's called new nature writing. Hmm. Um, and I think that's a really amazing and strong reflection on what's happening culturally that we are trying to make more space for nature in our lives but in our kind of cultural lives as well so what we hope to do is perhaps to offer some kind of opportunities for people to come and you know have a guided walk around get involved but also pick up some ideas about how to do your own nature journaling oh that you know. brilliant yeah and I mean, the listeners of this podcast probably will know, I'm quite obsessed with cities, inclusive, sustainable, just cities and urban planning. And in urban planning, they talk about green space a lot for the, mm. you know, well-being benefits to the residents. But those green spaces that these planners will often design is flat grass with yeah. benches and maybe like a playground for the kids. That's the, ex it's a very superficial, very one-dimensional idea of what an urban green space is. Mm -hmm. But the type of urban green space you're describing is beneficial not only for the people, you know, kind of the mental benefits and well-being activities that they can do there, but also this is a really complex and truly kind of what indigenous wildlife would look like you know mm. this is actually contributing to the ecosystem beyond just just humans that live on it and this sounds like the actual green space we want to have more of in urban spaces yeah I absolutely like... because you know these spaces are not they're not you know neat and tidy yeah. that they're not supposed to be nature yeah, doesn't exactly. like wildlife doesn't like, like neat and tidy spaces which is a great excuse if you're a bit of a slack gardener like me <laughs> you know leave messy piles of leaves leave logs um, mm. don't cut your grass so much mm. wildlife likes it messy but um you know the other thing is it's they these are i love these are surprising sites i mean i i've been to some of them and and one of them for instance is in south bristol dundry slopes which is on the very very southern um boundary really of bristol and right by the hartcliffe um estate which is a oh, very okay. big estate um and in an area of greater disadvantage mm. in bristol um, but Dundry Slopes is an absolutely beautiful space and actually I went there last week and it was a, a break in the rain, it was a sunny day, it was beautiful and there, there were little um, streams babbling, mm -hmm. little waterfalls flowing, you, you would not believe that you're really in a city, mm -hmm. the tranquility, the soundscape, the colours of the trees, the richness of the kind of trees, you really, th these spaces are in the city but often we don't even appreciate them or you know value them enough i think it is about kind of cherishing them but also not cherishing them and then putting some kind of boundary around but cherishing them as kind of places where people um can go visit feel feel like they're they're part of is part of their neighborhood and part of their daily life right i feel like we're already kind of getting into this because this vision that you created for how especially we as an urban species <laughs> interact with nature is beautiful um, if I could kind of ask you to kind of distill some of that, I know we've already spoken about it, but if, what would your ideal future or what kind of plans do you have for the future, either for Avon Wildlife, kind of things you have going on in the pipeline or things you want to do, or just kind of what would you want to see for Avon and 
the wildlife and the ecosystems here? Yeah, I mean, I guess I sort of start with something a bit dry and, you know, high level and political, <laughs> but I guess I feel because I've been, you know, politically engaged for my adult life, you know that despite all of the kind of amazing stuff that happens at neighbourhood level, and it is mm. amazing, and the kind of upsurge of community level action and grassroots movements, I, I love all that, I celebrate it. and. Um, but, but however, I feel at this point, we absolutely depend on and we need more than ever really, really robust laws yeah. to not just protect at the same level, but, you know, be ambitious for our environmental protection, because from that stems everything else. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's, that's the thing that I most want to see, you know, for, for, for my kids and all all of the kind of future generations otherwise what they're inheriting is an incredibly nature poor country you know um mm. the state of nature report came out a couple of weeks ago you know this kind of huge big research report where 70 different environmental and conservation organizations and government conservation agencies so the the, the best scientific minds around you know what's happening to our natural world um, massive pooled data sets you know this is the third state of nature report I think there's one in 2013 one in 2016 the 2019 report you know 56% of species are in decline one in seven at risk of extinction you know it's more of the same you know that kind of relentlessly doom-filled news that there's a there's a downward that you know the graph is going down it's not mm -hmm. up and it's getting sharper so you know, Sir David Attenborough has talked about, you know, the UK being one of the most nature depleted countries on the planet. I mm. mean, that's just shameful that, you know, mm. that's the situation we're in. So I think like absolutely kind of robust legislation and from that everything else can stem. And I suppose, you know, this idea of nature's recovery is about having larger landscapes joined up and, um, having that underpinned by law means there won't it won't be optional it won't be perhaps in the you know just on the whim of an in very pro-environmental land owner or farmer mm. i think there's going to have to be some well there, there were there will now be huge changes to kind of the way um you know agri-environment schemes work and how you know farming for wildlife and farming for nature needs to be put on a different footing but i guess what I want to see for Avon is just, I, I definitely think more children and young people having the chance to connect. And again, you know, a little anecdote springs to mind where one of the other school visits that I went on, um, which was actually on the day that the this class that I was talking about who fell in love with their European eels in their tank, um, <laughs> well, it was their release day. So, you know, there was some activity that they were doing by the side of the lake they were asked to sit on the grass. It was a beautiful sunny June day and there were a couple of girls there who wouldn't sit down on the grass in case something bit them. Mm. And it was so interesting and I was sort of asking them a bit about why they felt this fear, this fear of just sitting on the grass and they didn't really go and do that. It wasn't mm. a thing they did in their family and I think our schools um, have become places where, you know, children aren't doing as much outdoor learning as they, as they want to. And I would love to see, you know, more opportunities for children to learn outdoors and spend time outdoors. Um, 
and for you know and for more people to kind of just have nature in their daily lives I mean one of the fun campaigns that the wildlife trust collectively do and we do in Avon is the 30 days wild campaign um, and it's not a political lobbying campaign it's it's an engagement campaign where we're basically encouraging people to every single day of the month in June do something fun in nature yeah. and it's just a really nice campaign because people then share what they've done whether it's having their morning cup of tea outside and trying to just listen to the bird song or whether it's going out for a kind of picnic after school and you know drawing a picture of what you've seen it's a really nice way to kind of remind people that you know it can only it, it need only take you five minutes perhaps to alter your route to work to go through yeah. the park rather than on the road and just that thing of you know the well-being benefits of noticing taking time um yeah and celebrating our seasons and actually even in the pouring rain if you've got the right clothes That's on true. it always looks worse from the inside than when you're out in it i i think yeah sometimes uh, getting your feet muddy is if there's Worthwhile. good fun in it there's mm. good fun in it especially if you have pets walking them outdoors and all of those things it's great and i guess it kind of leads on to my next question which is um what can listeners do to kind of join in on mm. this on this mission i mean everything from the practical uh, everything from the small to the big yeah it's a great question well i mean i think one of the things that you can end up happening is that we you know we feel so overwhelmed you know all these kind of climate crisis and these kind of global natural systems can seem so huge um, making the right consumer choices around you know plastics and fashion and energy and it can just end up feeling huge but I think one of the good things is that everyone can play a part in helping nature to recover it doesn't matter if you could if you have a back garden or a backyard plant some wildflowers mm. wildflowers are fantastic for pollinators there's some information on our website we have our own wildflower nursery if you live in our region in avon we actually have our own wildflower nursery where we grow and sell um local locally sourced um wildflowers so there's over 100 different varieties these are beautiful flowers that you know my grandma and her generation used to just notice and you know name as they walked along the country lanes so they're things like betony and scabious and oxeye daisies and they're 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 perhaps sometimes a bit less showy than kind of you know your more traditional bedding plants but there's a really elegant quiet beauty mm. to wildflowers and they will grow really easily mm. they don't need special looking after well of um, course they belong they here. belong here exactly they belong here so plant some wildflowers make some space for nature if you have room you can make a wildlife pond wherever there's wherever there's water there's wildlife even if you just make a tiny washing up bowl pond it's really effective mm. and there's loads of actions on our on our website if people want to do that and again if oh, which is avonwildlifetrust.org.uk mm -hmm. um and then if you are in our in our region join us or you know have a think about joining us we have got 16,000 members we'd love to have you as part of our community all supporting nature's recovery um and yeah I would say that's how to get involved and then there are lots of things happening like the environment act um, and the environment bill which is now going to be progressing through parliament and some other issues as well that we've been really kind of raising our voice on around badger culling and the work that we've been doing in avon specifically to try and 
demonstrate an alternative to that policy through vaccinating badges against bovine TB. That's a whole other project, but there's ways to raise your voice and campaign. And it's so important that our policymakers, so our MPs in our region, really hear how strongly people feel about you know nature and environmental issues. Um, and those things that kind of those emails, those those meetings with MPs really help to kind of focus their minds on what constituents and, you know, citizens feel. So it's still an important thing to do. Brilliant. And just to uh, remind our listeners, that's www.avonwildlifetrust.org.uk. I will also have that in the show notes so you can just click on a link. Um, and here comes the hidden question, which I didn't tell you. Da, da, da. Um, so if you remember, the title of our podcast is True Heroes. Do you consider yourself a true hero? Oh, gosh. Do you know, not at all. No, I really <laughs> don't. I mean, I so admire. I mean, no, I, I consider myself a very kind of humble <laughs> soldier I don't like the military term but you know one of the one of the people that's trying to work on a really collective effort I've, I see it as absolutely it's a team here at Avon Wildlife Trust and mm. I'm, I'm you know I'm nothing without my colleagues um, correcting me when I've you know put some communication out with the wrong number of um, you know the wrong information about about otter footprints for instance <laughs> so no I don't see myself as a hero I I am really fascinated by how many environmental voices are now out there mm. and motivating people um, of all ages you know of course Greta Thunberg is so inspirational but equally I was seeing a little um, film of a 96 year old retired great-grandfather I think he was a perhaps a retired school teacher who had got arrested at XR last week for demonstrating and going into the police van with his huge dignity massive dignity he was being treated very kindly by the police but saying he'd never really um, been an activist he'd never got arrested before but he felt so passionately that he had to Mm. do something so I sort of feel like I'm very inspired by a lot of true heroes um but I don't see myself as one. As they all say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview, Naomi. I am sure that a lot of other people, including myself, are going to be really inspired and will be keeping tabs on what uh, Avon Wildlife Trust is doing. And also, get outdoors. Go do Yay. something. Touch the grass. Breathe the yes. air. Get do out. It. Yes, in whatever region you are. Um, and we can all be responsible for taking care of our wildlife. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. In the show notes, you will find all of the links and social media handles mentioned today. Check out Avon Wildlife Trust at www.avonwildlifetrust.org.uk. Their Twitter is at A-V-O-N-W-T. You can also find them on LinkedIn at Avon Wildlife Trust. If you enjoyed the show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and by introducing True Heroes to your friends and family. Subscribe, share the link on your social media, and by doing so, you will help new listeners find undiscovered stories from these inspiring changemakers. I also might read out one of your reviews at the beginning of the next episode, so that's a nice bonus. This podcast is a brainchild of OCO. OCO is in the business of building communities, hope, and opportunity for everyone in secondary cities around the world. 
thanks for lending an ear to True Heroes. Talk to you next time.